it's not just about Medicare for all is not just about fixing the problem of uninsurance. It's right. about fixing the problem of this sort of healthcare apartheid that that exists um, because of these completely different funding mechanisms that underfund some hospitals and overfund others. Welcome to Medicare for All Week. Today's interview, uh, Artie and I are sitting down to talk to social epidemiologist Justin Feldman. Hi, Justin. Thank you for coming back to the show for this special series. Thanks for having me again. It's always nice to hang out with you. Um, Justin is a health and human rights fellow at the Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, who studies social inequality and state violence. Some of Justin's recent research looks at how institutions like law, corporations, forensic, and public health work together to obscure state accountability for deaths in police custody. So we've had Justin on the show in the past uh, to talk about inequality and the push to reopen during COVID, but we wanted to have him back as part of our second annual Medicare for All Week to talk about his own research, um, because the topics you know that we're going to discuss today are more central to his body of work than school reopenings. This series uh, this year is all about how to build the movement for health justice looking forward, how to build power. And we have Justin here today to talk about some of the structural ways that public health and pathology help subjective institutions of power avoid accountability, and why it's important to be thinking about white supremacy, police violence, and healthcare for people who are not free when we talk about the fight for Medicare for all. So Justin, to get us started, before we get into our main discussion, do you think you could tell us briefly about your own research and your body of work? Sure. Uh, so I basically have two main areas of research that overlap at some times. One is looking at inequality in health outcomes, especially looking at the role of racism, uh, class differentiation under capitalism, and residential segregation. So how did those processes result in unequal health outcomes? And how do we even measure that? I, I'm mostly a quantitative research. Then the other area of my research looks at police violence, but from a public health standpoint, from an epidemiologic standpoint. Uh, one of my major studies uh, was just trying to get a count of how many people get killed by police in the U.S. in a given year, uh, because that's on death certificates in mortality data, but it turns out more than half the time it's not properly reported. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge part of what we've been talking about this year as part of the series is how there are so many points where the sort of the vital data that's needed to initiate policy interventions on some of this stuff just doesn't exist. And that's sort of part of this larger structural issue where our institutions of health and health administration and public health and you know, criminal justice, they're sort of framed on on this verifiable pathological system, right? But there are certain biases in the way that we collect data, which actually result in people like you not having necessarily the data set to work with to actually study this stuff. And by keeping it out of public view, we really do sort of hide the problem, correct? Yeah. And I, I actually see a lot of uh, parallels between my work on police violence and underreporting of killings by police and what's happening now with COVID and contact right. tracing, using contact tracing data that's very flawed because we don't collect better data uh, <laughs> to, to try to say that these businesses or these schools or these institutions are actually pretty safe because our numbers show low uh, transmission within our buildings. So th this is what Nancy Krieger, a uh, 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 famous social epidemiologist, calls no data, no problem. <laughs> so so j just like a complete lack of systematically collected data on injuries and killings caused by police action. So how bad is the problem on missing data? How pervasive is this? Uh, so there are a few data sources out there on police killings 
And one of them is the main public health data set. CDC runs it. Uh, it's collected by states. It's called the National Vital Statistics System. It has basically every death in the U.S. there. So what I found along with my colleagues was that um, more than half the time, killings are reported as something else. Uh, usually it's a homicide, uh, just like an assault-related injury, what someone would report if uh, just one civilian killed another. Uh, but then there was this other category uh, where there's kind of contestation about what really happened. So the, these are cases where somebody, a civilian, is killed by police but not shot by them. So George Floyd would be a quintessential example uh, where, where the, the cop's knee was on Floyd's neck, which ended up cutting off his, his air supply. Um, that's a whole category of like what I call deaths in custody, where those causes of death are all over the place, ranging from heart disease and respiratory disease to drug overdose to unknown, missing, accidental. And that's that's where some of my new work is focused on because it, it turns out that they, in the 80s, some medical examiner, forensics uh, person in, in Miami came up with a new condition called excited delirium specifically <laughs> to explain deaths in police custody that happen when someone is on cocaine or another stimulant drug. Uh, almost all the time, they're also restrained. Uh, and this this sort of idiosyncratic idea that started in the 80s came to take over as a really dominant explanation for these sort of mysterious, unexplained deaths that were happening while uh, police were holding down civilians or tasing them or uh, putting them in chokeholds. So what exactly is this uh, medical condition that's being used to justify, I guess, the fact that I mean, what what are they trying to justify by saying that excited delirium somehow presupposed the death in custody? Yeah, so what's, what's happening with excited delirium is it's being used by a range of actors in, in this system from coroners and medical examiners. Those are the people who investigate deaths, determine the cause of death, which is a medical uh, determination, and determine the manner of death which is either accidental or natural causes or homicide. Uh, homicide just means it's not a legal term. It just means a taking of a life by another uh, through in intentional action. So th they're using excited delirium to sort of, they work very closely with police um, in, in the course of investigating uh, homicides, in the course of investigating drug overdoses and the other sorts of work they do. Uh, so they have close relationships with police. And there's also surveys from, from their professional association showing that something like one in, in four or one in five uh, death investigators face political pressure from police or from uh, government officials to change determinations on death certificates. That's not just about deaths in police custody, but that's one particular category where this can and does happen, specifically whether it was homicide versus accidental. So excited delirium allows them to claim it was accidental. Excited delirium is supposedly this condition where a person who is on a stimulant, uh, it started out as just cocaine. They expanded it any stimulant. They expanded it further. Um, people with schizophrenia who are unmedicated uh, can have this condition whereby they have superhuman strength, uh, <laughs> acting violently, um, high high body pressure, high body temperature. These are all actual like signs people display, but that they're not necessarily coinciding with one another, and they're not necessarily uh, pointing to an underlying medical condition. So the claim is that there's a true underlying medical condition that can in and of itself result in death. And even there's kind of two sets of claims they make. Sometimes they say, even if uh, there was no police restraint or police action, the person would have died anyway. Wow. The, other kind, the other kind of claim they make is that this condition makes them more vulnerable to use of force that normally would not have run any risk of death. And 
in the in the way they parse it, they say that as a result, the officers wouldn't have known, and it was not their fault. Uh, <laughs> so, it's, coroners and medical examiners claim it. Prosecutors claim it. Defense lawyers for for cops and for city governments claim it. Uh, and then a, a particularly important actor is Axon, the company that makes tasers. So it's become the crux of their product liability defense. <laughs> but I mean, uh, but, but uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this, this as sort of uh, pathologization is pretty, like pretty much only exists for that category, right, of like, of deaths in police custody. I mean, this is not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is not something that is recognized by like international bodies as a disease this is not something that's like in the dsm right exactly so the dsm um which is the u the the diagnostic statistical manual which is the psychiatric list of recognized conditions in, in the u.s doesn't recognize it the International classification of diseases, which is the international version of of that, it also contains like somatic illness, does not recognize it. What they do point to, both Axon and other others who are sort of proponents of the validity of excited delirium as a category, they point to this white paper from 2009 oh, uh, put together by the... Uh, I forget what their acronym is, but it's it's the Professional Association for Emergency Medicine in the U.S. And they they have a white paper, and that's the closest to an official recognition they have. However, it turns out that many of the members on this task force that wrote the right pa- white paper uh, were funded by Taser Axon. Oh, uh, God. And it, it, because of their conflict of interest policy at the time, Axon... Axon gets away with a lot because they're not a medical device manufacturer. They're not a pharmaceutical right. company. So the conflict of interest policy did not require disclosure of their funding. Wow. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of amazing how this pathology is being appropriated in order to justify the violence, too. Like, as you're saying, it's, um, it's not only saying that the death possibly would have been inevitable even if the police hadn't intervened which is just absolute horseshit but it's also saying that their behavior is such that it required the police to be more violent than they would have been with another um person that they were apprehending correct exactly and in the eyes of police the techniques they're using that are resulting in these deaths are much less lethal than what they would have done in the past, which is just shoot people, which still happens, but is not quite as common as, as it once was, um, or beating them badly with batons um, also still happens, but not, not quite as often. So what, what I see what, historically was excited delirium sort of took off as a category uh, once there were some Supreme Court decisions uh, that that reined in use of force a bit, especially this uh, Connor v. Graham case um, in in the late 1980s, which that was a case involving, and and so many of these cases involve either um, mental health crisis, substance use, or or physical disability. So Con- Connor v. Graham was a case where there was uh, a black man with diabetes who. Uh, needed to boost his his blood sugar, so he started drinking orange juice in a supermarket before he paid for it. And pol- police were called. He was acting erratically, but really his blood sugar was just dropping, and they mm-hmm. beat him very badly. And that resulted in this Supreme Court ruling where the um, the use of force had to be proportionate to uh, the, the situation that a reasonable officer would have used this level of use of force. So that did result in some level of reining in use of force, but created this whole other set of less lethal techniques ranging from tasers to chokeholds to, uh, what they call, um, hog tying, hobble restraint, different restraint techniques that are less lethal than what they would have done in the past, but still poses risk of death. So what they're what they're saying is when you use less lethal force, there's no policy written to say that there there should be no accountability. But in effect, there will never be any accountability, or very rarely they will pay. Uh, depending on jurisdictions, they'll pay civil settlements, but then they'll use this excited delirium d- defense in in many cases to uh, 
sort of get out of any kind of criminal liability or or political liability that could result in further, uh, you know, restraint to police force. I feel like a lot of people don't understand how functionally like a lot of the communities that let's say like have worse health outcomes and they're they're predisposed to have medical conditions which could make them for instance like more vulnerable to being killed when uh, attacked with force like some of your research looks at how different areas for housing are segregated and how that actually corresponds with, um, you know, increased rates of environmentally triggered diseases or just diseases triggered by um, by stress, like hypertension and lack of resources. So part of me feels like the the sort of medicalized justification, which is obviously like sort of just the latest evolution of this idea that that people who receive violence from the state are deserving of it. Um, if you think about back to like the era where you had uh, escaping slaves being labeled as having a disease that caused them to like go mad and that that's why they escaped or the way that we um, ascribed characteristics to people at Ellis Island saying that this, you know, this person biologically would be criminal and we use that to incarcerate people or to deny them entry into the country. I feel like this is just the latest collaboration between medicalization and state violence where you have uh, a population which is targeted for violence and you have a a state apparatus or some sort of regulatory body that's creating a medicalized way to justify this. Is that is that going too far to, to basically say that this is medicine justifying violence? Uh, I, I do think there are some parallels there. And now that's actually something in, in my discussions about what, what are the historical precedents for excited delirium as a condition and uh, drapedomania, which is a condition you mentioned about the supposed um, uh, mental illness resulting in enslaved people trying to escape. Uh, that that was something that was in medical texts back in in I think the the early nineteenth century. Uh, that is, yeah, so it, there is a lot of there there are various forms of what I'd call victim blaming within the medical establishment, and and that is something that goes goes way back. And at the same time, um, epi- the history of epidemiology is, actually has has a tradition within it that has sought to push back against that. And if you go back to the very beginning of the field, um, back to the time of Friedrich Engels, who, who he actually has his book, uh, Conditions of the Working Class, uh, in in mm-hmm. England, which uh, which is like just about the midpoint of the 19th century in in the sort of industrial slums of Manchester, he's citing work showing different mortality rates by neighborhood type. So poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. had higher rates of death, um, and and he's he's coming up with this concept called social murder, which I actually cited in. I have a recent piece in Jacobin about the role of of workplace exposure in in uh, coronavirus transmission. Um, so the concept of social murder is essentially that the ruling class puts people in harm's way, such that they are vulnerable to premature death that could have been prevented. Um, and then you have somewhat less radical people, but but still doing these studies of uh, differences in health and mortality by neighborhood. Because the first mortality data, the first health data we had was mortality records. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, th- this guy, May back in, in France, also doing similar work, uh, showing higher death rates in working class neighborhoods and connecting that with dangerous conditions in in the factory. Um, so you had you had even then these sort of debates over uh, whose faults, what who, who should be accountable right. for for these uh, unequal death rates. Um, and and in the in the U.S. there were debates, and and in in uh, sort of the British Empire there were debates about whether there were sort of these inherent racial differences causing premature death um, versus differences in social conditions. Um, 
and and then you had that even even in the absence of of a racial analysis where you just had what we'd call white workers today there were debates <laughs> around around more t- morality and vice and uh or perhaps uh sort of these er- early eugenic arguments around um a working class is just producing uh, you know, they have all these heritable conditions that ju- they just keep making more children and they just keep going down the line. Yeah, I mean, the the determination that someone was somehow independently biologically defective is, I think, <laughs> one of the biggest tools for avoiding state accountability for violence. Just a classic violence. fallback, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you, you see it... Um, you see it in so many different structures of eligibility and determination. You see it in the way that we frame health finance in this country. You know, if if you have a a good job where you make a lot of money and you have benefits, then you get good health care. If you don't, uh, if you're poor, then you don't get good health care. And we sort of tie these things up to an individual's ability to, you know, participate in the capitalist economy. And that becomes your sort of measure of whether or not you're marked for survival or not. Well, also, um, and yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation within within the context of Medicare for All Week, mm-hmm. for example, because, you know, there are all these, all, like we talk about um, the term social determinants of health all the time, which are basically, you know, thinking of, there are other meanings to this term, but in a simplified way for how for how we uh, tend to view it, it's like, it's, it's a very important avenue for understanding all the different ways that um, both like healthcare, public health, um, and a, a number of other um, sort of basically like social welfare um, factors uh, make it so that re- like really so much of the entirety of the political economy feeds into how your basically like your life chances are determined, how you are um, uh, yeah your it feeds into your overall health. And I guess in terms again in terms of the the context. You know, I, I guess one of the one of the questions that we always have about that is what does it actually uh, like? What, what would it take for accountability to actually, you know, be foisted on the state or be foisted <laughs> right. on? Because, um, <laughs> y- you know, I mean, in the in the context of like, there's, there's we have a litany of examples within uh, talking about uh, like health healthcare. Um, healthcare as it's traditionally defined, but when you start to think about examples like, oh, you know, someone's a diabetic and it leads to them directly being uh, like murdered by police um, mm-hmm. after after uh, over a, a, a set of events, basically that uh, are directly tied to obviously not just tied to the lack of healthcare provision, but the lack of healthcare treatment for the diabetes of that individual. Like certainly was a huge contributing factor, right? So, you know, I, I guess the the question is like in a context like the one we're talking about, where we can you know we can talk about like excited delirium as the thing put on a uh, on a, a death certificate all we want, but I think it's very telling that, for example, about as far as far as I can tell, at least about as 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 far as um, some public health departments have pushed it is to list murders by police as quote unquote legal intervention. <laughs> right. Um, and I mean, I feel like that terminology itself says something. Yeah, that th- I don't know where that term comes from exactly, which is if I, if anyone should know, it's me because my my doctoral dissertation <laughs> was, was about that. Uh, but I, I, I kind of, at some point I, I figured out I would have need to have gone to like the the World Health Organization archives in into Geneva to figure it out. Uh, it, it was so that's the diagnostic category. Uh, that's when someone's killed or injured by police. Uh, it's under the ICD called legal intervention. It's absolutely um, wild to frame death in the custody of the state as legal intervention. We in put the, legal right in the name. Yeah, the continuation of life was just legally intervened in. Yep. And it, it actually used to be called um, injury by intervention of police which is a little more descriptive. And I mm-hmm. really don't know why it got changed. I think it was changed sometimes in the 60s or 70s. I think, you know, we see how pathology is weaponized all the time. And I, I think what these sort of determinations are often used to justify is the lack of accountability and is the continued inequality. And I think people don't necessarily, like you hear like, unequal health outcomes and do you think like maybe increased rates of cancer or heart disease or something like that and I don't think that people necessarily always think about what the actual material impact of that is in people's lives and how 
how the continued lack of accountability actually just perpetuates and 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 allows this system of labeling and sorting and violence to continue, right? Yeah, and and there's just there's so much emphasis on individual behaviors as and and genetics as mm-hmm. the sort of two main factors that are driving unequal health. Um, and it, it can be very hard to get people out of that mindset uh, when everything out there is reinforcing that those are the causes, that it's irresponsible behavior and going to social gatherings, that's what's spreading COVID, that really if everyone were just to behave themselves and wore a mask, wore two masks on top of each other, then, <laughs> then everything would be better. Uh, you can see this unfolding in real time where none of the people with access to media or uh, sort of official channels of communication about the pandemic are right now in the U.S. calling for a paid shutdown to lower transmission, and all of the emphasis is on individual behaviors. And thankfully, we haven't seen that much about genetic explanations. But even still, uh, there, there was there was a paper in in some uh, you know high, high level uh, medical journal claiming that. Uh, you know, black people have more ACE2 receptors in their nose, and that's why they're getting COVID at higher <laughs> rates. Uh, Jesus Christ. Off of a, this very small sample that was just like really making these bold claims that were unwarranted. I mean, there, it's this is just such a common thing, right? It, and it's all sort of, I feel like a lot of your research gets at something specific, obviously, but this is just part of the larger justification for not providing uh, healthcare to people really is that we say like oh you know you've got to you've got to lose weight you've got to exercise you've got to do self care and these are the ways to really improve your health and we don't talk about the finance side and I think this is why policies like Medicare for all do see so much resistance because essentially what what it would do as a policy would disrupt a lot of the excuses that allow the state to avoid accountability for death and despair. Yeah. And and I'll just reflect for a moment on my time at, so I, I was faculty for a time at a, a large academic medical center in New York City that mm-hmm. I will not name, but <laughs> it, uh, it bears the name of a major early Trump supporter who, who is a billionaire <laughs> um, and who called Bernie Sanders Satan uh, a, yep. a few years back. Um, and I had access to their patient data for a study I was doing. Um, I had access to this data set was every single person in their health system who lived in New York City, who was ages 18 to 64, so largely not Medicare eligible. Um, and that was... This wasn't really the purpose of my study, but I just looked at the data and it's like two thirds of these patients are white. One third of the New York City population of the same age is white. Uh, And then there were practically no Medicaid patients to speak of. I think it was under 2%. um, And even fewer who are uninsured. What you have in New York City is these well-funded academic medical centers, heavily subsidized by the federal government, mm-hmm. both through, um, you know, NIH grants, that's a, that's a major source of funding, and all sorts of other ways, but who are not accepting Medicaid patients uh, and are not accepting uninsured patients. And then at the same time, you have um, the city-run hospital system, and they are taking care of people of color in New York City. Um, and they're doing so with far fewer resources. And early on in the pandemic, there was uh, a study looking at uh, how long did it take someone to go to the hospital after they felt sick from COVID-19. And for white people, it was like two or three days. Mm-hmm. And for black people, it was like nine days. Uh, and so they're, they're going to, and there's various reasons explaining that, but it's not just about, Medicare for All is not just about fixing the problem of uninsurance. It's right. about 
fixing the problem of this sort of healthcare apartheid that that exists um, because of these completely different funding mechanisms that underfund some hospitals and overfund others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I and I think this is why you see such virulent opposition and such focus on a pay for question, because oftentimes when you hear people saying, but how do we pay for it? What they're really saying is, but I don't really want to pay for healthcare for people who aren't white because the the health finance system is part of the principal architecture that perpetuates white supremacy because what it does is it distributes resources more than anything else like healthcare is the distribution of resources and when we starve populations of resources and then subject them to uh you know surveillance oppression violence uh, environmental concerns that like affect their health. And then we blame the individual for their personal actions contributing to their death. What we've created is a system where the state can just say, you know, it had no hand in this person's death when it actually is, in fact, completely responsible for constructing the death of the individual. And it's also interesting to think about how um, and, and you both might have even more insight into this than I do. But the birth of Medicaid and Medicare helped to integrate racially integrate hospitals in in the South, mm-hmm. and and there there were some other factors, some court court orders, and that sort of thing too. Um, but the if you can say the, these public insurance programs can play a really beneficial role in breaking down uh, structural racism even as they still allow some of it to to persist, it's not going to cure everything. Uh, but then our heavy reliance on a private system helps to reinforce the segregation. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think one of the things that's always really telling is is also if you look at how healthcare is distributed to people who aren't free, to incarcerated people, where you you have cost sharing at that level. You have people who are warehoused by the state who are being you know, who are getting sick because people get sick in the natural course of their life. But prison is disabling. Prison and jail make people sick. The conditions that people are warehoused in cause medical problems. As we're seeing with COVID, you know, being in prison or jail is a pretty high likelihood of catching COVID because of the conditions of how we're allowing community spread to um to go through these congregate facilities. And so the fact that we that we still enforce cost sharing on people who uh, have their entire lives taken away, I think is a really interesting, um, interesting problem. But it's absolutely disgusting to think that what people object to when they don't want uh everyone actually to have the ability to have health care is that they think that some people don't deserve it. And that's sort of just baked into the way that we evaluate health and the way that we've evaluated populations since the beginning of this country. Oh, yeah. And and in incarceration is unhealthy, whether it's uh, prison, jail, immigration detention. Um, and, you know, there's there's been research before the pandemic and during the pandemic, not just on how uh, infectious disease can spread within incarceration facilities, um, but also in these sort of spillover effects that that they, they've been having. And there's sort of growing evidence. There's a couple of studies out there um, looking at the role of jail and processing in and out and, and the sort of failure to eliminate pretrial detention is spreading COVID in communities. And uh, also my, my colleague, Seth Prins, uh, and someone else I know, Sanjay Kajipta at Columbia, they've, they've been using data from Rikers uh, Jail in New York City and just looking at how how the people who are incarcerated there are being treated during the pandemic. And it's like, they're still running uh, capacity at pretty high numbers. They could be letting out more people under existing law. Uh, and they also haven't been testing people upon arrival, which is very dangerous. They've only been testing people who display symptoms upon arrival. And we know that a lot of people either aren't symptomatic yet or will never go on to develop symptoms, but can still spread. 
So you, one of the things that you mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation was how, I feel like one thing that, that people don't want to talk about often is like how, how research institutions and hospitals and scientists um, are complicit in, in the system of like labeling and sorting for, for premature death. And they're part of the general system of avoiding accountability and upholding medical apartheid. Oh, yeah. And it, it happens at, at every level. And sometimes it happens pretty blatantly and for reasons that are very much in line with institutions' bottom lines. Uh, and sometimes it happens in, in more subtle ways and in ways that can be more easily changed through education. Um, just thinking back to, so it's funny to think about the faculty orientation I had where the leadership for this academic medical system was presenting to us and apparently every year they give a little political message. In my year, uh, <laughs> um, they were justifying hospital closures. Oh, God. Uh, oh. <laughs> which is now, like, looking back on that now, it's like, wow, if, if they didn't close those hospitals, we'd have more beds and be in a better shape uh, for, for the pandemic. Uh, but, of course, it's, it's better for their, their bottom lines. Uh, and then I wasn't there, but a colleague told me she went to – the orientation the following year, and that was the year, uh, you know, that that Bernie was taking off in the primaries, and that that year's political message was Medicare for all would be terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but then I see I see it happening in in more subtle ways. So epidemiology, for one, pub, uh, let's say public health research and medical research, um, I think is important that. Lay audiences, to, you know, pe people without training who read those papers or, or read about those papers in media, um, those studies, any one study may not be particularly rigorous in, it, in itself uh, and always deserves some level of suspicion and doubt. It's very hard for someone without strong research training to be able to develop them, uh, to be able to evaluate the methods and strength of a paper. And that often includes the journalists who are writing about these. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one level. And another level is that science has theory, um, the sort of, you know, intellectual uh, schema for understanding how the world is organized, how to fit in uncertainty, how to generate hypotheses. Uh, but if you are a biomedical researcher, if you are an epidemiologist, by and large, you're not getting any kind of education about theory. So these subtle, uh, you know, these worldviews that, that you have by just living in the world and by being socialized as a researcher, as a student, um, you can be emphasizing genetic uh, factors or behavioral factors in, in isolation from the rest of society. Uh, and that, that can figure into how you generate your hypotheses, you know, how you do measurement, how you interpret your results, the kinds of actions you call for. Um, and that can result in, in a whole, whole range of, of problems. Like uh, often you see explanations, genetic explanations for racial differences and things like response to particular drugs Mm -hmm. uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, there is, there are more sophisticated ways of talking about how genetics affect, because uh, genetics do certainly affect some, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, drug reactions or uh, health conditions. But it's it's a lot more complex, particularly how it maps to race, which is social categories rather than biological categories. So th these are not even necessarily uh, issues that someone would be exposed to in their entire eight years of education or, or more between undergraduate and, and PhD, the people who are doing these studies. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the resistance to, to creating pathways for more people to both um, get education in these areas, like if we were to like eliminate college tuition across the board in the United States, for example, um, or we were to make healthcare more accessible to people by removing um, different types of payers so anyone could go uh, wherever they wanted. Or like, for instance, as we talked about in our interviews for this series with Ariana Planey and Adam Gaffney, so much of healthcare access is not about paying for it. It's about 
the geographical distribution of resources. And currently, I feel like the the lack of data is used to sort of justify not acting on distributing these resources better. We talk all the time about, you know, rural healthcare in the United States being such a big issue and people really needing to think of rural healthcare. And yet, you know, as you're saying, there's still this uh, trend of hospital closures. You have the consolidation of resources for research and, and development that are in, you know, major metropolitan areas. Some hospitals in the United States have only like one or two physicians who are there at any one time. And, and yet we sort of treat this healthcare system as if it's one unified body when it's actually a bunch of discrete, you know, small pieces of this really fractured web. What do you feel like something like Medicare for All could do in terms of just upending a little bit of that data collection to give researchers a better picture of actually what's going on within the health of the population in the United States? Do you feel like better interventions could be designed or do you feel like there's bigger things structurally that um, that also need to come as a change with Medicare for All in order to try and try and achieve better health outcomes? Yes, I, I think it's it's a bit of both. Um, I, I know in the past you were talking about ju- there's no good data on autoimmune disease prevalence in the U.S. because we don't have these national health registries that they have in other countries. So there are, there are critical questions that we struggle to answer simply because we have such a fragmented uh, healthcare system that leads to such fragmented data collection. Um, so that that's an issue, um, but I, I really think the benefits come in creating new state apparatuses, new forms of state capacity. Um, in the UK, everyone has a unique national health service identification number, which they can use to do things like administer vaccines, prioritize yes. vaccines, like look at the vaccine distribution. Whatever every state that's creating vaccine priority categories, the most privileged people in those categories are getting it first, uh, because because it's just like everything's on a first come first serve basis, basically, and then ultimately people are excluded. There's not like a state when the when the state is running things rather than at least the, the last mile handing it off to. Uh, private providers in a kind of haphazard way. When the when the state's keeping track of people, you have like sort of a rationality that can be imposed in all sorts of different programs that you're running. Um, and it's just, I'll just add that it's just so easy to create a strong primary health care system, and it's not expensive. If you look at what happens in in China with the barefoot doctors and in Cuba, in uh, in in the Kerala state in, in India, these are, you know, poor countries, or at least they were poor at the time, poor areas that were able to develop these very strong healthcare systems that yielded very good outcomes. Um, Simply because they they were divorced from the profit motive, uh, and and the you know the more we can go in that direction, it's like it's absolutely absurd that we have such a wealthy country uh, that we aren't able to provide such basic things to people. But it also is because we're such a wealthy country and and you know ca- capitalist in in you know, sort of extreme ways that that we aren't. Right. And this is why I feel like actually the counting of deaths and the kind of research that you do is so important because because healthcare isn't just keeping people alive. It's also the accounting for death and the justification for death and and accountability. You know, I, I think so often people are their own biology is blamed, as you're saying, and and ultimately, like this is also a, pro- a profit motive as well. So. There's this question of accountability, um, and I was talking about accountability for police violence, uh, but there's also questions of, of corporate accountability. We In the U.S., we don't have strong social welfare supports, right. but what we do have, is, or what we're supposed to have, is a system whereby if someone's harmed as an individual or as a group, you can get redress through the civil legal system through lawsuits. And one thing that happens by not having good data is it's harder to make the case that, for instance, a corporation's actions are harming people. Um, 
You can think about cancer clusters, for instance, and there's all these disputes. Uh, this is a very contested area of research. Like, are there areas where there's particular forms of cancer uh, that are above levels you'd expect due to chance? And if so, are they attributable to particular industrial sites in the area? Or you could think about COVID-19. Uh, we don't have great data on where people got coronavirus, partly due to the underfunding of uh, public health infrastructure. So you have this sort of poor quality contact tracing data, and, and we talked about this on earlier episodes, that really understate the extent to which places like schools or, if you're thinking for-profit, um, restaurants or gyms or whatever particular kinds of locations, uh, they're understating the contribution of each of these locations to, uh, to transmission overall. And you have industry groups that are saying, it's not us, just look at the data. Uh, and they're arguing this in court. And in many places, restaurant associations in particular are being successful in, in their lawsuits to keep their uh, businesses open and keep making profit. Um, Rather than, you know, if we had really good uh, public health infrastructure, we could be designing studies that would, you know, more definitively test the contribution of each of these types of, of businesses to the overall pandemic. And I, I think also when it when it comes to the idea of sort of like health spillovers from police violence too, there's there's definitely an incentive because of the way that we finance state and local governments to avoid accountability for, you know, the state or local government being responsible for the death in custody, correct? Oh yeah. I mean when when the public comes to see police's actions as unjust and avoidable, it can create serious outrage, uh, justified outrage, and all sorts of political consequences that they would rather avoid. Um, so they, you know, they want to obscure away the death uh, or the injury or the action in, in whatever way possible. So they've not done basic things like they there's a group that creates a standard death certificate for the U.S. Uh, they could put a death in custody checkbox on it, um, but they haven't. Right. And they probably won't. Uh, I was, in, in my research on this, the state of Colorado, they were the only ones who actually did put a legal intervention checkbox on their death certificate but it only lasted a few months because that's a state wow. with elected coroners and the coroners were not happy about it. How, do, how does that system work exactly? Cause I feel like coroners and a number and like uh, other, you know, public health officials who are part of that whole kind of ecosystem of what happens, especially when, which become, which is obviously, you know, innately, I think a political category as like pretty much any public official would have to be, um, how, like, how do these appointments work and what do they do? Yeah, Th this is such an important issue with uh, really important implications, both for the criminal legal system in general and for police violence in particular. So there, back in medieval England, there developed a system <laughs> called the Carner system. Basically, the, the uh, king of England didn't want to to concentrate too much power in the sheriff. So he created a separate office called the coroner that would allow, uh, basically allow the king to dilute the power in, in these different areas of the country. <laughs> um, so, and one of, the, one of the coroner's responsibilities was death investigations. And that system transferred over into colonial present day U.S. Basically, coroner's, came to be first they were in colonial America they were appointed by the crown um, they came to be either appointed or very often elected at the county level uh, but not typically not requiring any particular education level and there was a lot of corruption in, in the system earlier on people being paid off to make particular determinations for example or they'd compete with each other and and I heard stories from New York City of coroners fighting over bodies because they got paid for if, if they were the one to get to do the investigation. Oh my God. Um, there was a very, the, the slowest reform movement you could imagine 
starting in the early 1800s to replace coroners, elected coroners, with some new position called a medical examiner, someone who is uh, not elected but rather appointed uh, and has a, a medical degree, um, though there's, there's still problems with medical examiners too, and they're quite often not board certified and they're also subject to political influence, but <laughs> it's something. Um, but th- these are the people who are making determinations about deaths that will result, even if it's the death of a civilian, uh, result in whether or not the person's charged. Uh, there's also cases around uh, particularly death of children uh, under sim- similar mysterious circumstances. And, Police can also pressure coroners and medical examiners to make the t- particular determinations depending on whether or not they want to criminally pursue a person who may or may not have been bo- involved in in a child's death. Um, and then b- back to the excited delirium for for a moment um, and and data collection. This is a little bit of a pivot, but um, the li- the latest in excited delirium is that it's being diagnosed in the field essentially by the police themselves who are calling paramedics and pressuring the paramedics to administer forcibly administer ketamine um, to uh, as a treatment for excited delirium Um, in practice there's no or little to no oversight of this process so they there's now there's been a little bit of media investigation um, they've, uh, found cases where the person who was dosed by the cops, um, or by the paramedics at the behest of the cops wasn't even exhibiting signs, uh, of what you'd consider excited delirium if you, you buy into it. Uh, but they're just using it as, as a sort of way to subdue and punish people. And often these people end up intubated uh, in hospitals, it can be pretty dangerous. And they're administering, basically, everyone gets the same dose, which is, depending on your size, uh, can be a very high dose. Uh, there was right, one, yeah. Elijah McLean in 2019, uh, was uh, like a black man in his early 20s who who was forcibly dosed with ketamine and, and ended up dead later that day. Uh, and there's no, there's no good data collection on how often is ketamine used in the field mm. uh, and what are the outcomes for uh, the, the people who, you know, who get forcibly dosed. How often is excited delirium cited in police reports? We have such a fragmented system that's, uh, that either doesn't collect data at a national level or even a state level or does so only voluntarily, uh, so and and tolerates a lot of underreporting. Yeah, and I, and I feel like all of these like components are things that you you don't necessarily hear reported about when when the conversation of you know abolish the police or defund the police comes up. No one's talking about how like the data collection part of it is something that people are being resistant to because that is that is something that state and local governments don't necessarily want on on their conscience well, or it keeps it easier to brush off demands like abolish the police basically. yeah exactly oh yeah definitely and but it has been hardening to see there have in some of these police reform bills which aren't always the greatest um at the state level some of them have included components that uh require better data collection uh particularly california's but there's always, you know, there's always struggle. It's good to have that data at the same time. Anyone who analyzes that data is going to, if they do it in a critical way, is going to face pretty vehement pushback on what the data actually means. And then it's actually very difficult to analyze data from the criminal legal system in ways that analyze uh, bias. Uh there, it gets to some complex statistical issues, but if you don't account for the, the process of policing itself, it's very easy to uh, miss racial bias, for instance. I feel like actually abolishing the police is one of the biggest like healthcare goals we should have as a country because you know, even if you don't know anything about the police and you've just sat down and listened to this conversation, I I think it's pretty clear how responsible they are for harm in the community. Yeah. And they're, they're used as uh, a way to, to deal with people who, who are, you know, sometimes really struggling with issues ranging from mental health 
crises that they can't get compassionate care for to substance use to, um, you know, physical disability and its manifestations. Um, and they're not able to deal with those things, but we we've, we've put so, like state capacity essentially in the ways that it interacts with civilians is prisons and police and courts. Like that's, right, exactly. that's what we've invested in and we've divested in these systems of care. And this, these are arguments that, that go way back. And there's this sociologist, Louis Quaquant, who, who's talked about like, basically if there's some kind of social problem, you can, um, medicalize it, you can socialize it or, or treat it through sort of social determinants of health, or you can criminalize it. And and he sort of traces that out. But so often in the US, the things we've done uh, have, have been pushing towards criminalizing problems, or, or sort of, as I've been discussing, this hybrid intertwining of medicalization and criminalization. Right, exactly. Right. Well, the medicalization is used to, to justify that the criminalization is somehow humane, right? Well, and I think that's, I mean, I do think fundamentally, too, that's such an important point. These these things, uh, abolition and, uh, and a movement like health justice or Medicare for all, um, they obviously a lot of people who talk about who talk about both do uh, acknowledge and talk about and emphasize the overlap between them, but really understanding them as part of a continuum whereby, um, you know, we focus so little on, uh, you know, social public health supports and we focus so exclusively on punitive measures that the state actively is creating many of the harms that otherwise it should be seeking to redress. (laughs) Right. They're so intertwined and, and it's, it's a, a movement for health justice cannot uh, ignore the the systems that the state uses to avoid accountability, I think, is really an important thing to have underlined. Maybe as a final topic, uh, you've been doing a lot of research looking at how a lot of these like structures of uh, inequality are correlating to COVID deaths recently, right? So I have a few different uh, studies I'm working on. One of them was published as a preprint and and some of them are, are still in process looking at who is being affected most in the pandemic in terms of dying of COVID-19. And I'm sure you've talked about it on the show before and probably everyone listening will will know um, that there's just massive racial inequality in in rates of of COVID-19 deaths. Um, what, one of the things I found is basically no one who's white and under 65 is not no one, but very few people who is white and under 65 are dying. Uh, the, right. the rates are extremely low. Uh, and I think that kind of points to why such a high level of death is being tolerated, uh, where, where the people who are dying are institutionalized, disabled, old, and people of color. And if you're not in the, those categories, uh, you know, the, the risks are pretty low, or have been at least up to now. Um, and I found that, you know, a if you're a person of color, particularly indigenous, black, or Latinx, your risk of dying from COVID is the same of a white person 10 or 20 years older than you. Jesus Christ. Uh, There's just absolutely tremendous uh, inequality in in the age uh, that people are experiencing risk. Um, And then in terms of not collecting good data, there's all these politics of data collection, which has sort of been a theme uh, of this episode. We don't collect good data on uh, socioeconomic uh, conditions of the people who die, uh, or at least it can take a while before it comes out. So we still, right. there is education reported, highest level of education reported on death certificates. We don't have that yet. Um, it, it'll take a while to get, but I was able to use data from Chicago and Cook County and Illinois to show uh, within racial groups who's dying in terms of people living in poor neighborhoods versus people living in wealthy neighborhoods. So you have black and Latinx people dying at very high rates and at much higher rates than white people. But even within the black community, those who live in, in poor neighborhoods are dying at higher rates than those that are living in wealthier neighborhoods. Same thing for Latinos. Um, and then I originally thought that uh, white people in poor neighborhoods were dying at high rates too, but that turned out to be 
an issue with how Cook County reports their deaths, and they were taking a they were taking a long time to update their uh, race data. So they they basically put someone as white until they got evidence otherwise, and and they they've been so busy they haven't <laughs> been processing it. So it, oh I, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a wonky technical issue because it does look like um, the county, maybe through the health department rather than through the medical examiner office, is reporting better race data. However, in general, we know nationally that people who are either Latino, Asian, or indigenous frequently get misclassified in mortality data as white, thereby understating the inequalities. Um, but that's just to say that what I found is even poorer white people in Cook County are dying at pretty low rates. Um, so there really is beyond what, what uh, income and neighborhood poverty data is capturing. There are these profound racial differences. And we can see um, in housing segregation and occupational segregation, these are things that sort of to a degree transcend uh, socioeconomic differences. So, even middle class black people tend to uh, not have the same degree of housing wealth as as white people uh, for all sorts of historical reasons, um, and are more likely to live in inter- multi generational housing and in crowded housing, and even more so with Latinos who are more likely to be immigrants living in crowded housing. Um, so it's not. People often ask when you talk about racial inequalities in health, it's like. Oh, is that just because of uh, differences in economic uh, attainment? Um, mm-hmm. And that explains part of it, uh, but not the whole thing. But certainly not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I think also like it, it speaks to the fact that, as you're saying, like data it both sort of reflects ideology and and uh, codifies in these these like prior beliefs about race um, being some sort of biological determinant of health or health outcomes. Well, let's put it this way. If you have a completely fragmented, you know, I would have people use the term health care system. You know, I would not, <laughs> I would hesitate to even use that term because that, uh, that implies a degree of uh, thoughtful planning and control, I think, or at least, uh, you know, uh, at, at least kind of mechanisms that work well together. Um, when you have a systemically underfunded, you know, public health systems, when you have, um, when you have essentially like no real, uh, healthcare system to speak of other than, you know, a number of competing private companies, you know, that's a lot of different avenues for a huge variety of forms of, uh, systemic racism. And, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm noting that you're not going far enough to sort of call it systemic racism necessarily, but, I, I guess, you know, I don't know. I'll, I will say that. Oh, yeah. As the, pod, it, as it, the podcast host and not the researcher. <laughs> it's funny, like, people want me to say that word. To me, it's so obvious. Yeah. And oh, I forget yeah, it's not. I, I forget. I forget it's not so obvious to everyone. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of saying the obvious dumb thing. <laughs> That's kind of my role. I mean, I've even been, I've even been criticized for not, you know, not saying, like, to me, it's, of course it's racism and I for, I forget <laughs> I forget that not that that's still living in a world uh, you know my own imagination where that you know where that's just so obvious you don't have to say it. Yeah. No, exactly. It's like the only planning that has gone into our healthcare system is how to uphold white supremacy and that's yeah. about it. Yeah. We also we have we have that problem a lot here where we'll you know we'll rattle off terms like cost sharing and you know talk about very specific facets of medicaid or something like that and <laughs> it's easy after a certain point it's easy to just like kind of uh, forget non-assumed context <laughs> right. I suppose. Yeah. no and i i think I, I really appreciate this conversation because i think it's really important to consider all of the facets that need to be involved if you're trying to refigure the political economy to 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 reorient around health where where we treat Every individual is having, you know, a right to survival, which is not not how it is now. Unfortunately, as as we've talked about, there are numerous sim- systems that basically just exist in order uh, to do exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a it's been a pleasure. Yeah, 
Thanks for having me again. And it's probably my last time because I've said literally everything that, that <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but, it, but it's been great. Uh, thank you so much. No, I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Where can people find you if they want to follow you and your work? Um, so you can find me at jfeldman underscore epi on Twitter. I also have a recent piece in Jacobin. Uh, if you search for Justin Feldman, uh, coronavirus, occupational disease or something like that, you can, you can find it's all about how workplace exposures are sort of being understated in the pandemic and that individual behaviors are being overstated and what that means and the, the sort of implications for racial inequality, et cetera. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week. As always, Medicare for All now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. This has been Medicare for All Week from the Death Panel. Medicare for All Week is an annual series presenting brand new interviews with activists, researchers, and others on building power toward Medicare for All, why we need it, and how to win it. Up next, in tomorrow's interview we speak with Dean Spade about how the goals of the abolition movement and the movement for Medicare for All are intertwined, how we build power, and how Medicare for All would create a base to help us push for broader demands. To support our show and make event series like Medicare for All Week possible, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.